I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. One of the most difficult things during the Christmas season uh, for children is to wait. What are they waiting for? Um, They're not waiting for Santa Claus. They're not waiting to do their chores. They're not waiting to take out the trash. I can assure you they're not waiting for school to begin. The children are waiting to open their presents. Am I right? In fact, some of the kids here this morning, I'm looking around. Some of you look like you're about ready to explode. Patience, it it will come. The presence will come. Well, the human race has literally waited for thousands of years. They waited thousands of years for a very special gift. They were waiting for someone. They were waiting for someone in particular whom God had promised. And in order for us to understand what these people were waiting so intently for, I want to have you look with me at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Of course, this is on the heels of the creation narrative. God had created the cosmos. He created all things. And in verse 15, the Lord God took the man, that is Adam, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, we all know very well what happened in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God by eating of the forbidden fruit. And this first couple plunged humanity on a, a collision course, a collision course that if left res- unresolved would, in fact, as we have sung about and heard about, result in eternal judgment. Paul the Apostle said this to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Back in Genesis chapter 3, as our first parents had committed this horrific evil act the lord now addresses the serpent he says in genesis 3 verse 15 and i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel in this short verse in genesis chapter 3 verse 15 we have what may be one of the most important passages in all of sacred scripture, as God promises to send a redeemer. And ever since that day, humanity has waited. They have waited for a redeemer. They have waited for someone who would come 
to set them free from their sins. They have waited for someone who would deliver them from the guilt of their sin and the weightiness of their transgressions. Some of you this morning, many of you have actually come into contact with the promised Redeemer. You know the promised Redeemer. You have been delivered from all your sins. The the penalty of your sin, you have been delivered. You have been forgiven. Some of you this morning have been waiting. You've been waiting an awful long time. You've been waiting for a message that you would hear that would transform you forever. Some of you remember Jareen and, and my friends who came several months ago who minister in the faraway land of China. And as they reach out to a particular people group and begin to share the gospel with them, these people in this geographic location of China will relay the fact that they too have been waiting and waiting and waiting to hear about a redeemer. They have been waiting for someone who will rescue them from all their sins and their transgressions. Some of you who have come this morning to Christ Fellowship have lived under under the curse for your whole life, and you have come this morning in search of forgiveness. You're in search of meaning. You're, you're longing for something different. Why? Because the curse has rendered you hopeless and helpless without God in this world. Sure, you live a, a meaningful life. You have a good job. You have a great family. You live in a great house. You live in a great community. But something is missing. Something is awry. Something is wrong. And the curse has left you wandering and worshiping created things rather than the Creator. The curse has placed you in a horrible position where you have found yourself to be literally separated from the God of the universe. And so with this context of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 in place, you can understand why the people throughout history would cry out, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. This morning, I want to invite you to turn to our central passage to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. If you are a a guest with us this morning and need a Bible, please feel free to use a, a Bible in the pew racks before you and turn to page 807. 807. This morning, as we read God's word, our custom is to respect God's word. It is our highest authority, and so I would have you stand to your feet as we read in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Father, today we come together and um, express our thanksgiving uh, for the plan that you set into motion before the creation of the world. We thank you that uh, you knew in advance about the horrible event that would happen in the book of Genesis, where our first parents would fall. They would flee from your presence as they committed this horrific sin, which left them separated from you. It left them in a position where they would bear the weight of their sins unless a redeemer would come and rescue them and deliver them. And so now we thank you as our, our focus is set upon the redeemer. Our focus today is set upon the Messiah. And for anyone who has been at Christ fellowship for any length of time, my prayer, God, is that this would come as no surprise that our focal point each week is set upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be no different today. May you do a good work in each person that is here today. I pray for followers of Jesus, that they would be encouraged and strengthened in their faith. I pray for those who do not have a relationship with the God of this universe at this point, that they would be drawn to the Messiah today, that by the power of the Spirit, that you would do a special work of grace in their heart and in their mind, and that they would leave uh, changed forever, transformed forever, sins forgiven, past, present, and future. And so we ask that your Spirit would do a, a great work today in, 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 in this place. We ask these things in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And if you would turn your attention back to Matthew chapter 1 and just briefly scan the context. The context or the foundation of our passage, which begins in verse 18, goes all the way back to verse 1. And in verses 1 to 17, I hate to admit this, but this is the section of Scripture that when you read in your morning devotions, you may be you may be tempted to skip over verses 1 to 17, and that would be tragic, would it not? Because all of Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for the people of God and their edification. And what we find in verses 1 to 17 is the, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, these days, there are many people in our culture who are interested in this matter of genealogy. I am very interested in, in my family roots and the origin of my family. And actually, uh, one of my aunts many years ago did some research and did some digging and, and found some very interesting data that concerned the Steele family. You might be interested to know that it's either my fourth or fifth grandfather down. I think that makes him my great, 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 something like that. He uh, was hung for stealing a horse. Not very proud of that one. But we have websites in our culture that are devoted to helping family members trace their family origins. Well, here in, Gen in, in Matthew, rather, chap chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, we 
once again find the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of the individuals named, as you might expect, were born in the, I'll say this sensitively, normal way. They were born in the way when a a man and a woman come together and a, a child, a baby, is conceived. But in our passage before us today, we will discover that Jesus Christ and his birth was a totally unique birth. It was a birth that would lead to the transformation of human hearts. Indeed, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ would transform the nations. So I want to invite you to come and behold the wondrous mystery as we make four very important observations about our passage this morning. Four important observations about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, look with me at verse 18 as we explore the setting of Jesus' birth. The setting of Jesus' birth. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Remember that the first verses that precede this verse, verses 1 to 17, describe normal genealogy where a man and a woman come together. and We will discover that it's altogether different in our passage. It took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 2, Verses 3 and 4, we read that Joseph had had gone up from Galilee. He had gone up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called what? Bethlehem. Because he, that is Joseph, was of the house and the lineage or the genealogy of David. And the reason that Bethlehem is called the so-called city of David is actually found, you don't need to turn there, but it's found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verse 12. And that is, it is called that because it, in fact, is the birthplace of David. It is the birthplace of David. Now, if you can think in your mind's eye, think about Israel. Bethlehem is located five miles south of Jerusalem. You have the lay of the land in your mind. And Bethlehem is also called a pastra to distinguish it from another Bethlehem. That is the the Bethlehem of Zubulun. And so when Jesus was born, recognized that Bethlehem was a mere village. It was not any kind of a a special place. It was a mere village. But as we look at the settings of Jesus' birth, I want you to turn your attention from Bethlehem now to a matter that is, is very foreign to us in our culture today, and it's the matter of betrothal. The matter of betrothal. Betrothal comes from a Greek word that means this, a pledge to be married. A pledge to be married. And the first thing that pops in most minds is, ah, that sounds an awful lot like engagement. That sounds like engagement. And so before Doreen and I were married, we went to Cannon Beach. And we stood, it's, it's one of our favorite places, even to this day. We went to Cannon Beach, and Doreen, uh, I can't remember, did, did I get on my knee? I did, and I can't remember. I got on my knee, and I whipped out the ring. It's a beautiful ring, and, and Doreen's eyes got about as big as saucers, and I said, would you marry me? 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get smacked for this one. If I remember right, Jerry said something like, right here? Right here? <laughs> <laughs> <I went. laughs> so much for drama, right? So we did not get married right there, but Jerry thankfully said yes. And I gave her the ring and placed it on her finger and we embraced. And several months later, we were married. Well, that's not exactly what's happening in this particular case with the betrothal. Indeed, the betrothal means a pledge to be married. And in fact, you can even say it means to become engaged. But it was different in Jewish culture. You see, in Jewish culture during these days, it was customary for the parents of a Jewish couple to arrange the marriage. And so the marriage would be arranged by the parents. And when a couple became betrothed, they were actually considered to be married. They weren't married yet. You got to stay with me. They weren't married yet, but they were considered to be married. And some of you have probably read Matthew chapter 1. And you see uh, that Joseph is referred to, look at verse 19, as the husband. Now, when Jereen and I got engaged... If we had have gone to my favorite donut shop in all the world, in Cana Beach, how many of you have been there? People need to get out. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. If we would have gone to the donut shop and Dream would have said, meet my husband, my eyes would have got big as saucers because I'm not her. I want to see if you're with me. I'm not her husband yet. We are merely engaged. It wasn't until later in the month of October that we were actually married. And so here we have a situation where Joseph and Mary, their marriage is is set up. They're betrothed. They're referred to as husband and wife. And during this period of betrothal, we have a one-year period. That is 12 months where the man... To be married lives with his mom and dad and the woman that is Mary lives with her mom and dad and they are apart in these homes for a period of one year. Obviously, no physical union takes place. The purpose now of this betrothal period of this one year period, this waiting period, if you will, is to cement literally cement the faithfulness of the man and the woman to one another by proving themselves to be sexually pure. And so in this, in this scheme, in this, in this matter of betrothal, if a woman ever conceived, if a woman ever became pregnant, obviously it would be very apparent that she had not kept the terms of the betrothal, that she had been involved in a sexual relationship. And if this happened, and it would happen in Jewish culture, the marriage at that point could be annulled. And so after waiting for a year and the purity was proven, if the woman proved that she was sexually pure, the husband at the end of this waiting period would immediately, and I I picture him going rather quickly, he would go to the, the bride's parents' house, he would take his wife home in dramatic fashion, where of course their marriage at that point would be consummated. That sets the stage of Jesus' birth. Now, I want to have you turn your attention to the second matter in our passage that concerns the storm surrounding Jesus' birth. The storm surrounding Jesus' birth. Look at verses 19 and 20. And her husband, 
Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered all these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And we'll look at the rest here in a moment. First, I want you to see what I like to refer to as a personal storm. A personal storm. You see, what happens is Joseph receives word in verse 18 that Jesus is found to be with child. Now, with the cultural setting in place, you can only imagine what is going through the mind of Joseph. And it's interesting because verse 18 tells us that Joseph was a just man. That is to say, Joseph was a righteous man. And such a description, you should, you should know, does not mean that Joseph was without sin. When the scriptures say that Joseph was a just man or a righteous man, it doesn't mean that he was sinless. We are told, you might remember in Genesis chapter 6, that Noah, you remember Noah, he was described by God as a righteous man. Now, was Noah without sin? You can probably think of a few episodes in Noah's life that would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was a sinner. He was a sinner. And so when the scripture says that Joseph was a righteous man, it simply means that he was a man committed to pursuing God's standard. He was committed to walking a righteous life, a righteous lifestyle. And so imagine now the shock of Joseph. Imagine what Joseph would have felt like when he got the email. Imagine what Joseph felt like when he received word, when he got the call. Hey, Joe, you're never going to believe it. Mary's going to have a baby. Now, we know that Joseph was pure because we're told he was a righteous man. And I imagine that Joseph's heart was utterly broken. Verse 19 tells us his strategy. It says that he was unwilling to put her to shame, so he resolved to divorce her quietly. And what that does in in my mind is tells me and it reconfirms that he was indeed a righteous man. And the reason is this, is that such an act showed devotion, so much devotion to Mary because if it was ever revealed that she was with child, that she had been sexually impure, we do know that Deuteronomy 22 would call for her to be stoned. And so here is a man who is heartbroken, but a man who is passionately in love with his wife because they're betrothed, although the relationship was not consummated yet through physical union, he resolves to divorce her quietly to get her off the hook. The scripture says, as he considered these things and pondered them carefully, he found himself in the midst of another storm. I want to take you now and move from the personal storm to what I like to refer to as an an angelic storm. Because the angel of the Lord now reassures Joseph. Imagine the anxiety that Joseph is feeling. Imagine there may even be anger there. There's frustration he, he's going to lose this woman he loves. And the an, angel comes and reassures Joseph. Notice what the angel says. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
We will learn more about this in a moment, but for now, please understand something. And this is probably a word that won't immediately jump out to you. But when the Bible says that that this child is from, would you mark that word from, from the Holy Spirit? That comes from the Greek word ek. And you say, what does it mean? It means this, that the word ek indicates a, a marker or a reason for a marker or a reason for where is this child from? The child is from the Holy Spirit. He's from the Holy Spirit. We see this two times in this passage where the child is referred to as being from the Holy Spirit. And so in my mind, what happens here is Joseph, this man of integrity, this righteous man, moves because of this dream. He moves from being anguished to absolute awe. Can you imagine? He moves from anguish to awe. One minute he thinks his wife is unfaithful. One minute he thinks his wife is, is a sexual sinner, that she has been impure. The next minute, the faithfulness of God is reaffirmed in his mind. This is the definition of a paradigm shift. He moves from anguish to awe, for the Messiah would be born. The Messiah would be born of the Virgin Mary. And certainly such an event would prove to be not only significant for this righteous man, Joseph, it would be a matter of profound significance for all the nations. Look thirdly with me at the significance of Jesus' birth. The significance of Jesus' birth. And I want to uncover five very important theological points of reference that help us to see how significant the virgin birth is. And many of you were in Veritas this morning. I made reference to this. And so this will be a review for you. But so often in the Christian life, we hear about doctrinal realities like the virgin birth. And I think and I fear what runs through many of our minds is here we go again. I've heard about the virgin birth. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, right? Let me encourage you this morning to, to listen to these things about the virgin birth like it's the first time you've ever heard it. Because these are absolutely earth-shattering realities. Think about this. Imagine that you walked into Christ Fellowship and you'd never heard about the Virgin Mary. You'd never heard that the child was from the Holy Spirit, that this woman who had never had sexual relations with a man now conceives. And in nine months, she will give birth to the Savior of the world. Look with me first at the first theological significance of the virgin birth. The first thing is this. Is it shows us that the hope of salvation rests in God and God alone. The virgin birth reminds us that the hope of salvation rests in God and God alone. A well-noted theologian puts it this way. The virgin birth of Christ is an unmistakable reminder that salvation can never come through human effort, but must be the work of God himself. The second doctrinal significance of the virgin birth is that the virgin birth made a way to unite full deity and full humanity in one person. 
This was the means that God devised. This is the means that God developed to send his son into the world. And Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4. He said that when the fullness of time had come, when had the fullness of time come? When he decreed that it would be the best time in redemptive history for Jesus Christ to be born of the Virgin Mary. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, the second member of the Trinity, born of the woman, born under the law. Notice the third significant point, and that is that the virgin birth makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. You see, every time a woman at Christ's fellowship has a baby, that child is conceived in, as David said, sin. Every man and every woman on the planet is conceived in sin. And so if Christ had sin, as I do and as all of you do, he would be utterly unqualified to bear the weight of all our sin on the cross. Number four, I want you to see that the virgin birth reminds us that God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over all things. And there's a question that you might pose, and this is a question that has been posed over the years, is what if it could be proven? What if it could be proven that Mary was not really a virgin? What if it could be proven if Mary was not really a virgin? Would this pose any significant problems for the Christian faith? And I want to have you, as I explain this, uh, wrestle with this in your own mind. If, if, you, if you turn on your Kindle tomorrow and you read the Washington Post and it said, Newsflash. It has just been proven that Mary was not a virgin. How would that affect the way you live the Christian life? Could you live the Christian life? And what would your final destiny look like? Well, this is a question that was posed by former pastor Rob Bell a few years ago. And the question whether or not it would be a problem if Mary was proven to not be a virgin evidently poses no difficulty for Rob Bell. And I want to read a few of his words and have you wrestle with them and, and make practical application to this. He says this, quote, What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus has a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find that Larry's, they find Larry's tomb and they do DNA samples and they prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in. That is to say, they made it up. Owen Strawn, noted theologian, says this, Bell's harmful, erroneous teaching leads to this. We miss an astounding display of God's sovereignty if we poo-poo the virgin birth. The virgin birth is not incidental to our faith. It shows that God must initiate the salvation of humanity. We could not undo our sin. God alone could rescue us. The virgin birth is not an odd blip in the history of the person and work of Jesus. It is a thunderclap from heaven. God initiating his rescue plan. You see, the virgin birth is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. The virgin birth is one of the key Pieces that God has placed in human history 
so that you and I can be forgiven of all our sin because Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. And the final reason, the final doctrinal significance I would point out emerges in verses 22 and 23. And that is that the virgin birth literally fulfills prophecy. Look at it with me. All this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That is the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Two things that emerge here in this section of Scripture. First, we see the fact of Jesus' birth. The fact of Jesus' birth. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. I want you to think about this verse. And we will likely hear this verse quoted tonight. Would that be right, Karen? The Lord will give you a sign. And think about when this prophecy is written. Around 750 years before Mary conceives. This prophecy is written around 750 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And the prophecy reads, therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I want you to see also the importance of the location of Jesus birth in Micah chapter five, verse two. We read, but you, O Bethlehem. Ephrathah, remember that word, another name for Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. When was Micah written? About 750 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see two times in our passage this morning that Christ The Christ child is ek. He is from the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the Christ child is from God. I want to ask you today, have you come to terms with this Christ child? Have you come to terms with who Jesus is? Have you come to terms with the reality that while he was indeed born of the Virgin Mary, as Jason remarked earlier, he, in fact, is the uncreated one. Jesus Christ, while he was born in that stable, Jesus Christ has existed from all eternity. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Have you come to terms with the grand reality that Jesus is from God? Have you come to terms with the grand reality that Jesus is God? Some of you have a passion for evangelism. And I want to encourage you as you share the gospel to be sure to tell your your friends and family members that Jesus Christ is not only from God, Jesus Christ is God. I'll tell you, you will get some weird looks when you hear that assertion. There are many people. I love it when I watch the Grammys or some of the award shows. Everyone thanks God, thanks God, thanks God. Very rarely will you hear someone say, thank you to my Savior, Jesus Christ. The uncreated one, the one who created all things. The one who died on the cross for sinners. Finally, I want you to see in verse 21, which I believe is really the heart of this passage, 
Look with me at the stunning purpose of Jesus' birth. The stunning purpose of Jesus' birth. She will bear a son, the angel tells Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Doreen and I will have been married 25 years this October. Been the greatest time of my life. And I can't tell you how many times that we have placed Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 on Christmas cards. By the way, we didn't send out Christmas cards this year. So if you don't get one, everything's cool. (laughs) No one got one. As we look at the stunning purpose of Jesus' birth, I want you to focus in intently on the angelic message to Joseph. There are a few things that the angel reveals to Joseph. And the first is this. She will bear a son. That is, Mary, the Virgin Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Greek word Jesus comes from the Old Testament, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. You see, people in that culture, when they would name a child Jesus, they knew exactly what it meant. And this little one who received the name Jesus, this is the one that means Yahweh saves. And since the name Jesus means Yahweh saves, the next words from the angel should have come as no surprise to Joseph, nor should it come as a surprise to anyone. And he says this, There's some of the most beautiful words we'll ever read in all of Scripture. He will save his people from their sins. Are you hearing these realities like it's the first time? Because imagine if you walked into Christ Fellowship today, a sinner by nature and choice, and I came up to you and said, Hey, how are you? And you say, Better than I deserve. What do you deserve? White-hot fury, wrath, judgment. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. And Joseph hears, by the way, he deserved it as well. He hears that this child who is conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, he will save his people from their sins. I want you to focus intently again on this verse with me for a few minutes. And look, first of all, at the word people. In verse 21, would you mark the word people, the Greek word laos, and it means this, the people who belong to God. He will save his people from their sins. Now, the people of God includes the Jews and the Greeks alike. It includes the Jews and the Greeks alike. That is to say, God has his sights set on his people. He would save them from their sins. And Revelation 5 9 makes it very clear that it is through the means of Christ's blood that he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is to say, when when Mary gave birth to Jesus, Yahweh saves. He had his eyes intent and set upon whom? The nations. Representatives in China. Representatives in Asia. Representatives in Germany. Representatives in Australia. Representatives in South America. Representatives from every tribe and nation all around the globe. 
he would save his people from their sins. Then would you mark the word save? The word save. It's a word that means to rescue or deliver from danger. And I think it's important to define the word. To rescue or deliver from danger. And so we pose the question, and I I hope you're posing the question in your mind's eye as we think through this. Exactly what kind of danger are the people of God being delivered from? You remember back in Genesis 2 that God warned Adam. He said, if you disobey, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will help me surely die. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul told the Thessalonians that God would deliver them from the wrath to come. Of course, we know Romans 6 verse 23 that the the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as people who walk in with fresh ears and fresh eyes to hear the truth of God's word, here is what Jesus does. He saves his people from their sins. He would perfectly obey the law. He would succeed where our father Adam failed. He would live the life that God demanded Adam to live. He would live the life that that you and I need to live but never can. He would die a death that each of us deserves to die. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus came As the Apostle John said, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to to rescue us from all our sins. He came to forgive us of all our sins. He came to give us abundant life. You remember those words in John 10.10 that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come so that you may have life and life abundantly. And the question which is on the table before each of us today, is, is Jesus your Savior? Is the Messiah your Savior? Have you you turned from your sins? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you accepted the free gift of eternal life? For anyone who has come today, hopeless, helpless, without God, racked in guilt, suffering, struggling, aimless. The message of the gospel is this. Believe on the name of the Messiah and you will be saved. You will be delivered from divine judgment. And what you will find is this, is that the gospel will not only deliver you, The gospel will transform you. The gospel will revolutionize your life. The gospel will revolutionize your goals. It will revolutionize your plans. It will transform your marriage. It will transform the way you deal with your friends and your family. It will revolutionize the way you you dialogue with your boss. It will revolutionize everything about your life. What struck me is this. What the saints of old 
only dreamed about is they would say, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Think about the Old Testament saints. Think about David. Think about Jonah. Think about Micah, about Jeremiah, about Isaiah, about Ruth, about Esther. They waited and waited and waited like the children who were ready to explode are waiting to open their gifts on Christmas morning. They waited for the one who would deliver them from all their sins. And while we live in a generation that is all too familiar with terrorism and suffering and cancer and AIDS and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and conflict, we are comforted by the peace that Messiah brings. He has forgiven the sins of literally every person who believes. And the Bible makes this much clear. One day Christ will return and he will make all things new. Are you ready for that day? When Jesus will come to make all things new, he will right every wrong. And while the saints of old, while, while the saints of old would cry out, come thou long expected Jesus, we cry out, come behold the wondrous mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray with me. Father, what a joy it is to look back on the historical timeline to see that you had a plan even before the creation of the world. Father, thank you for the plan that would send the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this planet for his people so that their sins would be forgiven, so that their guilt would be erased. So that all their sins, as we learned last week, would be separated as far as the east is from the west, buried in the sea of forgetfulness, hidden behind his back, blotted out of the record book. Father, thank you for the gospel. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you willingly came, that you willingly became a man, that you willingly lived under the law and you obeyed the law of God. And you willingly went to the cross so that everyone who believes in you and trusts in what you completed on that cross would be delivered, that they would be saved, that they would be numbered among the people of God. God, I pray that there is someone today, if they have never uh, turned from their sin and trusted Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. If that expresses the, the need and the desire of your heart, would you call out to the living God, God, I am a sinner, I have violated your law. I have broken all of your laws, but today I have heard the message of the gospel that says that Jesus came to save me from my sins. I trust Jesus. I turn from my sins. Thank you for the salvation that you give me, which is by grace alone through faith alone. While it sounds simple and even simplistic, I thank you for the, the, the message of the gospel that promises to liberate me and transform my life. And now may we sing with, uh, with the vigor of the saints. May we sing as if we'd never heard the words before. May we be filled with awe, all for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.